it's lovely to be given the opportunity to preach to you. Um, if you have a Bible um, or this passage, keep it open in front of you so that you can follow along and see that what I'm saying really um, does come from the, from the text. So um, I think that when we look at stories, all good stories will have conflict of some sort or another. Luke Skywalker has Darth Vader, Liverpool has Manchester United, or depending on your perspective, Manchester United has Liverpool, uh, the Avengers have Thanos, and Jesus had, at least in earthly terms, the Pharisees. Now, if you have spent any time around church, it's quite easy to see the Pharisees as stock villains who are kind of gleefully rubbing their hands together, trying to foil Jesus's plans. But I'm not certain that this is the most helpful picture of the Pharisees to have. Um, instead, I think there are two things that you should probably know about the Pharisees that will help us to have a better picture of who they are in this passage and indeed throughout the rest of the Gospel of Mark. So one is that the Pharisees were a group of people who were very careful and particular about following the laws of the Old Testament. Um, they did this so much that they built up extra laws around the laws of the Old Testament in order to make sure that they didn't break them. And then they built up extra laws around those laws. So by the time it got to Jesus, they were not just tithing, they were tithing 10% of each of their individual herbs and spices. Um, if they got a tear in their cloak, for instance, they were on the Sabbath, they were allowed to stitch it back together, but only with one stitch. They were allowed to administer medical attention on the Sabbath, but only if it was to save a life. This is to keep the rule of not working on the Sabbath. So there were rules upon rules upon rules, and they tried to follow them all. Um, and the second thing to note is that they were publicly educate public intellectuals. They were educated because to be a Pharisee, you had to be taught by another Pharisee. Um, many of them, for instance, were on the Sanhedrin, which essentially meant that they were lawyers. Um, if you were, for instance, hosting Radio Judah and you wanted to interview someone on the direction the culture was going in or what the best way to solve some moral quandary was, or if you wanted to write a school report on some interesting philosophical question, you would probably turn to the Pharisees. These people were the culture-forming, respected intelligentsia. Um, and it's into that context that Jesus comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, Jesus has come telling people they need to repent, which means turn their thinking around, um, in order to become right with God. Now, the Pharisees have been building up traditions and teachings on how they think you should become right with God, and they've been doing this for the past couple of hundred years. They arose just at the end of the Old Testament, sort of after Ezra, and their rule following um, kind of accrued over that time. So maybe surprisingly, maybe unsurprisingly, um, we see that there is a conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees arising. Um, so the lens through which I'm going to be looking at this passage is the question, how do you get right with God? 
this is a question that both Jesus and the Pharisees are trying to answer. Um, and around that question, there are three main conflicts that arise. Um, and these conflicts roughly correspond with um, the way I have divided up the passage. So the first conflict in the story of the paralyzed man um, is based around the question, who is Jesus? And in particular, does he have the authority to put you right with God? The second question and the second point of conflict is who is in and who is out? What I mean is, should Jesus be hanging out with the righteous or with sinners? Is it only the righteous, according to the Pharisees, who are right with God, who are welcome to God? Um, and thirdly, what does obedience look like? So this is um, from verse 18 of chapter 2 through to um, verse 6 of chapter 3. Um, and the question is, um, is obedience uh, rule following, as the Pharisees would have it, or, as I believe Jesus has it, more to do with relationship? Um, so the Pharisees have built up a system of rules, whereas Jesus frames the obedience slightly differently. So let's go immediately to the first point. Um, the Pharisees' first disagreement with Jesus, as I've said, is one of identity. Um, so if you'll look down with me at um, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2. And the story goes thusly. Jesus has just come back from a big preaching trip um, and is back at Capernaum where he began, probably in Peter's house. And once again, he's preaching. But even for Jesus, this sermon goes just a little bit unusually because at some point in his sermon, as we saw so wonderfully in that video, uh, a little dust starts falling from the ceiling and then a little more because there was a hole in the roof. Uh, the people of Capernaum were probably expecting their day to be interesting. That's why they'd come to Jesus. But this was probably exceeding their expectations. And then there's a man being lowered from the ceiling by four of his friends through a hole in the roof. And it's quite clear what they want. Right. If we look back just a few verses earlier um, at chapter one and verse 45, um, it tells us that Jesus's fame had spread throughout the region, region because of his healing of the leper. These people clearly hope that Jesus can heal him. And instead, Jesus addressed what he sees as this man's even greater need, even greater than healing from paralysis. He declares this man's sins forgiven. And I want to drive home to you the magnitude of this statement. So imagine, for instance, that you're riding on a bus and you see someone who is, you know, being a little bit rude to his wife. Um, you know, it's public, it's a bit embarrassing, but, you know, it happens. How weird would it be then? And frankly, how insulting if you, you know, stood up, walked across the bus and said, I forgive you for that. Well, why would that be weird? Well, of course, because the sin is not against you. It's not your place to offer that forgiveness. Or how about we take it a little bit further than that? Recently, America has just inaugurated a new president. And before they did that, the old president used um, some of his remaining time in office to give exercise one of the privileges that comes with his position the presidential pardon. So 
I looked this up on Wikipedia, and there's some really interesting language in that. Um, it says, a federal pardon in the United States is the action of the president of the United States that completely sets aside the punishment for a federal crime, i.e. a crime that's under the federal law. Now, put whatever you think of that particular practice aside, uh, because we can observe a really interesting underlying principle here. The person is pardoned in spite of their guilt by authority derived from the presidential position. And if I went to a judge in America and I gave them this piece of paper, uh, which I've just writ written, which says one pardon for the crimes of Allen against America. I don't know who Allen is, he doesn't really exist. Um, but it would not do poor old Allen very much good, right? Because only the president has the authority to pardon the federal crime. And indeed, as the Pharisees are saying, only God would have the authority to pardon this man for his sins. You can look at the word and um, the word that Jesus uses is just a very generic word for your sins. And the fascinating thing, of course, is that the Pharisees are right. Their theology is on point. Only God can forgive sins. That's not really their disagreement with Jesus. What they disagree with is whether or not Jesus is God. And if the story ended there, and that were the only fragment of the Bible we had, I might well be inclined to agree with the Pharisees. Nothing much happens, physically speaking, when Jesus declares this man forgiven. He could just be saying stuff. But he wants the Pharisees, and indeed Mark wants the readers to know, that, he, that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He's saying, essentially, yeah, I do have that authority. What does that tell you? And in order to prove that, he tells the man to get up and walk. And amazingly, he does. Imagine the shock in the room. It's not unlikely that because this man was carried around on the bed, he was a quadriplegic. He had use of none of his limbs. Um, and this man, with no physiotherapy, with no medical attention, without anything except Jesus's words, stands up and walks. It's no wonder that the reaction is we've never seen anything like this before. Um, all of the people at Kenilworth who are doctors at the moment are incredibly busy at the moment, so I do not want to burden them with any more work than they need to have. But if you do need to ask them, you can go to them and ask them whether or not um, a quadriplegic with no physiotherapy, with nothing, can immediately get up and walk. And I can assure you that they will tell you that that does not happen. This is a miracle. Um, and of course, this story is designed to do the same thing to us as Jesus was trying to do to his audience and Mark was trying to do to the original audience. He was steering them gently to answer the question, who is he? If Jesus has the authority to shape reality by his words, to say to the paralytic, to say to the paralytic man, be healed, then surely he has the authority to forgive sins as well. Um, the text asks its readers, who is this man? And as we keep on reading the Gospel of Mark, it pushes us again and again towards making that decision. And 
making the decision of who you think he is. And I urge you to continue looking to make up your own minds if you have not already. But this is a long passage, let's plow on straight with the story. Because after this, Jesus goes to Levi, the tax collector. Now, I promise you that this is directly related to the story beforehand. Um, but first, let's go through it. Um, in those days, to eat with someone, as he is doing um, down in verse 15, um, was not just kind of, you know, an invitation around someone's house. Food was fellowship. To be eating with someone meant that you had, to some extent, an identification with them. You um, would not eat with someone who was an outcast to you. Um, and it wasn't just Levi. A large number of his tax collector friends were there. There were many tax collectors and sinners who were following Jesus. Um, and this is somewhat surprising because the tax collectors are the lowest of the low. Um, to explain what they've done, they've sided with the invading party for their own financial gain, aiming to make an easy buck off a national disaster by exploiting their fellow countrymen. Um, since we're in a time of na national disaster at the moment, to some extent, I feel like I can use this illustration. Imagine how much animosity you would feel towards someone who was taking advantage of the current COVID situation in order to exploit people for their own financial gain. And now imagine that they visibly did this day after day and that you were one of their victims and you saw their house getting bigger and their car getting fancier whilst your furlough package is barely stretching to cover what you need. This is the best analogy I can think of to describe how the average Jewish person felt about tax collectors. And yet here is Jesus enjoying a meal with a whole group of these people. So once again, the Pharisees take issue with it. They, of course, do not believe that tax collectors were in. They do not believe that Jesus should be passing his time with someone quite so vile and sinful. They think a well-respected rabbi should be spending his time with more righteous people like them. And once again, Jesus does not have a qualm with their assessment as such. He agrees with them that the people he is hanging out with were sinners. Um, if you look down at verse 16, 17, pardon. Um, he calls the people he is hanging out with sick. He says, I have come to call sinners. Jesus could have engaged in some, well, you're no better. He could have said, who appointed you judge over these people? He could have come with all sorts of sharp comebacks to their assessment. But instead, he agreed with it. And so, of course, the question arises, why is Jesus hanging out with these people? Well, he's told us himself he's not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees believed that by keeping a set of rules, they be, could become righteous, i.e. right with God. And here's where I want to tie this back to the paralytic. Jesus gives his reason for the unusual behaviour, and this, he ties it in masterfully with all of the miracles that we have seen so far. 
the healing of the leper, the healing of the paralytic, the healings of the many multitudes of people that have come before and indeed the people who are to come. Because Jesus came as a spiritual doctor um, and all of his healings point towards the greater healing that he had come to do. And there's a presumption here on the part of the Pharisees, right? They clearly don't see themselves as needing healing. The question, why is he associated with them, carries the implication that the Pharisees deserve to be associated with. They have the presumption that they are righteous. And the question you should be asking yourself is why? What have the Pharisees done that makes them think that they are righteous? And indeed, they've done lots of things, as we shall see. Um, the issue with the Pharisees is not they have done. The issue is not that the Pharisees think that they have failed to do things that will make them righteous. Is that they have a conflict with Jesus over what righteousness looks like. Um, and indeed, this is the third point in the story, right? Because this is why this follows um, with the question about the fasting and the question about um, the harvesting on the Sabbath. So when the disciples are picking grains with their hands, that's probably breaking the rule of fasting. And then in the third section, the healing of the of the on the Sabbath. Um, so let's move on to the question of what does righteousness look like? Okay, because that then helps us later on come back and see how Jesus assesses those who are in and who are out. So we'll cover all of the rest of chapter two, all the way to three, verse six. And I'm going to be skimming over a lot of detail and just picking out one thread of the idea. The Pharisees think they are righteous because they followed a particular set of rules that they have set up. Jesus disagrees, it seems. When they question him on why he is not following these rules, he repeatedly gives answers that I believe can be summarized as being right with God looks more like a righteous, a right relationship than it looks like rule keeping. So the first question that's brought up um, is the question of fasting. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Pharisees had a practice of a twice weekly fast, which is prescribed absolutely nowhere on the Old Testament law. And people ask Jesus why Jesus's disciples are not fasting when it seems everyone else is. And once again, instead of law keeping, Jesus answers with a picture of a relationship. He imagines how insane it would be for a wedding attendee to be fasting. A wedding is a cause for celebration. Jesus is attentive to the way his disciples relate to him as the bridegroom to be celebrated and enjoyed rather than um, relating to him as the setter of rules to be kept. Um, a similar idea comes out with the question of Sabbath keeping. So the disciples are walking through picking bunches of grain and eating them. Um, and if you look just at the last sentence of that particular story, um, in verse 27, Jesus says something very telling. He says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We do not have a God who insists on rules being kept for rules sake. 
Instead, we have a God who has put the rules there for our own good. Once again, this is a far more relational idea. If you look to Jesus's other teaching, you hear him say in the Lord's Prayer, we relate to God as our father. And this, I think, is the type of image that is being drawn out here of a loving father who has set things in place for our good. And so let's rock it on to the high point of this conflict, because Jesus comes toe to toe with the Pharisees. He doesn't just go to their fight. He doesn't just let the fight come to him. He brings it to them. He is teaching um, on the Sabbath and they're watching him for funny business. They're wondering if he will break the law, break their law by healing someone who is not in a life threatening situation. And, you know, they're kind of watching carefully, kind of, I can imagine them kind of just watching Jesus in the background, making sure what he's up to. And Jesus calls their bluff. He doesn't discreetly heal the man. He doesn't, you know, go up to him at the end of the service and in a conversation, talk to him and then heal him. Instead, he calls him up the front. Um, and before he heals them, he then brings the conflict to them with a resounding question, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. And, you know, if you're reading this now, hopefully you can see that this is meant to have an obvious answer. But they won't give it. And so rightly, Jesus is frustrated. He's angry and he's saddened by their sin. And what an appropriate response. Sin should anger us and sin should cause us sorrow. There's no glee in Jesus calling out the Pharisees only sadness that these people will not repent. And then he heals the man on the Sabbath. And I love it because without having any work to go and do, you know, on the Sabbath, you don't need your arm for harvesting. You don't need your arm for going to do anything, according to the Pharisees. And yet Jesus gives him healing and wholeness so that he can continue to enjoy the rest that God has provided, but now whole. Um, and the Pharisees, on the other hand, they tragically give their own answer to Jesus's question. They deem it right to conspire to kill on the Sabbath. Hopefully, this shows us the accumulation of the Pharisees' problem with righteousness, because all of their rules cannot give them what they need most. Their action betrays a spiritual sickness that needs healing. Mark has held up the action of the Pharisees and the actions of Jesus and asked which one seems more like righteousness. And at this point, I hope that the answer is obvious. So finally, let's finish off the story with asking, how does Jesus react to all of this? So if you look at verses um, 7 to 12, and in particular 9 to 12 of chapter 3, you can see what Jesus is doing. He's healing a lot of people drawing a crowd, driving out demons, and preaching. And I find this fascinating because this is really similar to verses 32 to 34 of chapter 1, where Jesus is healing many, drawing a crowd, driving out demons, and he's just been and is about to go preaching. So, you know, what does this tell us? Well, Jesus carries on. He withdraws from the conflict. He has reasoned with the Pharisees and they have not received him. And he's not faced by this. 
he withdraws not in defeat, but in order con to continue doing what God has called him to do. So now that we've seen the whole story, um, there's a question of how we should respond to this. I've been feeding this in throughout the sermon, so none of these applications should surprise you, but this is a long passage, so I think that um, summarising this would be helpful. Firstly, um, I'll raise the question of how we, as believers, should deal with opposition. Like Jesus, Christianity today is often dismissed by the world around us, by the educated intelligentsia, by all sorts of people. Um, and there are three ways that the, Jesus teaches us to respond. Firstly, with wisdom. If you read through the passage again in your own time, you can see that Jesus carefully addresses their question, never dodging the issue, never softening the truth, and never falling into their trap of, you know, accepting their level, but always accepting their presuppositions, but always bringing in what God's view actually is. And um, I believe that God provides Christians with the ability to um, do the same, to in wisdom respond um, carefully and without dodging the issue. Secondly, um, Jesus responds with sorrow, um, as you see in chapter three, verse five, where he's angry with their response and rightly so, but he is also sad. It's appropriate for us, as Jesus did, to weep at the broken, at the way that the world is broken. But then after all of that, thirdly and finally, we should not stop what God has sent us to do. Um, the world is a mess right now, just as it was in Jesus' day and just as it will continue to be. And Jesus addresses the way in which the world is a mess. But then he continues preaching the good news to all who will listen. And we would be wise to do the same. Now, so first point of application is how do we respond to opposition? The second point of application is simply to remind you not to try and to earn your righteousness. If you're here and you would not call yourself a Christian, there's two things to note about this. Firstly, and hopefully, obviously, don't try what the Pharisees have tried. Do not fall into the trap of thinking, if I behave well enough, I'll get into God's good books. It went badly, even for the Pharisees, even for people who were, in some sense, the most law-abiding people of all times. Don't think it will go any better than you, for you. But perhaps, and more importantly, I think this is more likely what people who aren't Christians, but have spent time around Christians might think. You might think of Christianity as a bunch of rules to follow. And becoming a Christian demands great change, sure. But this is because of a relationship, not because of a system of rules. Jesus, the man on whom all Christianity is based, has thoroughly rejected that idea. So you can be sure that if you see people claiming that this is what Christianity is about, they're getting it wrong. But of course, many of you I know who are listening are Christians. 
and I still want to give you the same warning. Don't let Christianity merely turn into rules to be observed. I know that I'm quite good at this. I think that God won't be happy with me if I don't read my Bible, when what I should be concerned with is reading the word of God who has provided me with that as a gift. I often treat God's word as a thing to do rather than a gift to be received. And for you, it could be a million and one different things. My encouragement to you is to prayerfully examine your own heart in your own time and figure out where it is that you are trying to earn your own righteousness. And instead, do what the paralytic does, do what Levi does, and do what all of the other people outside of Jesus and the Pharisees do in this story, and look again at Jesus's free offer of righteousness. And indeed, um, I'll hand back to Wayne now, and our closing song is um, very much of that theme. Um, thank you, Wayne.